It was just like your whole world had just been ripped out from underneath you. And I felt just pain that I had never felt in my life before. And it was so raw and private that I had this room full of professionals. So it was it was a really strange moment, like trying to somehow contain this uncontainable force. This episode is brought to you by The Parlor Hair and Body Salon. With a quick reminder, it's okay to take time for yourself. Hi, I'm Chelsea. You're listening to Beyond the Picket Fence, where you're invited to take a break from keeping it together. Let's get real. Today's story found us through a cousin. Not my cousin, but a friend of mine reached out to me about her cousin's book. It's called Is There No Other Way by Emily Adams. The mission of this book is very similar to the mission of my podcast. I love this book so much that I listened to it all in one sitting. And I just knew I had to invite her on to share her story. Why does this book resonate with me so much? And what can we learn from her? Here is the author of Is There No Other Way? Emily Adams. I'm Emily Bush Adams. I'm, I grew up in Logan, Utah. I'm number seven of a family of eight kids. So 10 of us total. So big family, lots of big personalities. And that's why I'm the way I am. <laughs> I love it. I'm grateful that you're the way you are. <laughs> My dad is a director of the counseling center up at Utah State University. So he's a psychologist or was until a couple of years ago, he retired and and my oldest sister and her husband were pioneers for our family in that they were big world travelers and they lived in Africa and on an Indian reservation in Alaska and they've just been all over. And so they really paved the way for the rest of my family to be, we're wanderers, we're explorers. And I think that that has really lended itself to a mindset that I fostered from youth on up of like really wanting to know what makes people tick, to understand that we come from different cultural heritages and backgrounds. And that always feeds into the way that we interact with the world and the way we see the world. So then when I graduated from high school, it was really important to me to have some experiences like my siblings had had because I'd seen the positive influence in their lives of living abroad. So at one point, five of the eight of my siblings and I were all living abroad and I taught English in Mexico and my husband and I lived in Paris, France for a summer, which was magical. And then before I met my husband, I was working with a nonprofit organization that helped people with leprosy in India. And so that was really amazing. So I always had this vision for my life that I would just be like this world philanthropist. And then I married a Southern Utah farm boy <laughs> and he is so marvelous and has taught me so much. But one of the things that we differ in is he doesn't like unexpected things and I love unexpected things. So when we travel together, it's an interesting dynamic, <laughs> but we've spent the last 13 years married this June and we've lived in St. George and Mesquite and Cedar City. And now we're in a little farming community in Utah. Opposites really do attract. She said he doesn't handle surprises well, but she just said they lived in Paris. How did that go for them? Oh, he was wonderful. I mean, it was funny though, because we were newlyweds. We'd only been married a year and we didn't have any kids yet. So he came home maybe a couple months after we'd been married and was like, hey, they've got this master's degree program that we can do and finish up in France. And I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> like the answer is yes. <laughs> So when we went over, I did not know this about him yet, that how nervous he is about travel. And like, I wasn't that far out from having done all of my travels. So I just was like, this is going to be awesome. And then he, his French is way better than mine. And so we'd get places and I'd be like, oh, just ask that guy, you know, where to go. And he'd be like, no, no, you ask. <laughs> and I'd be like, your French is way better. Just ask. Anyway, so we learned that for me, like part of the excitement of travel is not knowing where I am and then discovering it as I go along. And for him, that's like a nightmare. He hates not knowing where he is. And <laughs> so we're different that way, but it's actually, it's turned out to be a really sweet thing in our marriage just to find that balance of personality. He's more introverted, I'm more extroverted and learning to play off of each other's strengths. 
So it's been a a journey. (laughs) I relate to this a lot. My husband is very introverted and private. And I'm like, hey, let's make a podcast where we talk about all of our dirt to the world. We've made this mutual decision that it's probably best if he doesn't even listen. He did say, though, that he would come on and tell his story if we hit a million downloads. So come on, guys, let's get working on that. But seriously, though, I think opposites often attract for a reason. I always compare it to like a kite. Justin, my husband, is the string and I'm like the kite. Without him grounding me, I would crash and burn or fly away, get stuck in the tree and be crazy, you know? Without me, he would be a string just laying there, boring on the ground. But together, we have a lot of fun. Well, you know me. As soon as she started talking about her significant other, I had to ask, how did they meet? So we're kind of an arranged marriage. I was actually in India and I was supposed to be there for a longer period of time. And I kept having this prompting that I needed to go home. And I thought for a minute that I was just being like weak because India is hard. When I lived in Mexico, I was like, oh, I've seen third world now. Like I couldn't see anything. And then I moved to India and I was like, oh (laughs) my gosh. (laughs) If I had my rating system, I would say seventh world. Like it's unbelievable poverty and unbelievably different than what we experience here in the United States. And so it was really, it had a lot of challenges. And so I thought maybe I was just copping out. And then I just kept feeling like, no, you really need to go home. And so I ended my service about two months early. And the day I got home, my sister called and she said, hey, I met my next door neighbor, blessed her baby at church on Sunday. And I met her brother at church. And I think you guys would really hit it off. And I was all, whatever, I'm in Logan. He's in St. George. So they're about six hours apart. Like nothing, sure, you know, give him my number. That's fine. Their first time speaking on the phone was a two hour long phone call. It just felt, it's totally cheesy, but it just felt the most natural, just relaxed conversation I'd had. I think part of it was because neither of us had any expectations. So it was just like, we can just be ourselves and there's no pressure. They talked on the phone every night after that for a month. Before they finally met, dated nine months and the rest is history. It's been wonderful. He's such a good man. He is... I better happen all the ways. Rewinding a little bit, I am not a traveler at all. So I was super interested in knowing more about her many travels. I was 20 when I went to Mexico and I was there for a semester. So I was there from January through April. And then that same year in July, we left for India. And so I was in India until almost uh, November. And was it through school? No, the first organization I was international language programs. It was just a nonprofit that you would go in and teach English to underprivileged children. And so I lived with a host family and then would walk to my school each day. And it was wow. It was really cool. I didn't go with anybody I knew, but I met these three other girls who came from different parts of the United States and they became just lifelong friends, amazing, amazing people. And then with India, it was through my my brother-in-law was one of the first missionaries in India. And then he'd been home from his mission for, oh, I I don't know, 10 plus years at that point and had this opportunity to to serve as a doctor for this nonprofit called Rising Star Outreach. And so he would travel to the leprosy clinics and treat them as a doctor. And I just kind of tagged along. I was like, I want to (laughs) go. That is so cool. They were really generous and let me come with them. So it was a great great experience. I asked her if she knew a lot of languages and we compared our Spanish skills for a minute. And then she hit me with this beautiful insight from her travels. What I love though, and what I've noticed no matter where we've been is just that like, we all want the same things and that human beings at their core, we just want love and kindness and safety. And there's so much more that can be communicated through a smile and through hand gestures and body language and And what the funny thing is, is we kind of went to France with people having been like, oh, the French are so snobby and they're so stuck up. And and when we got over there, like what we observed is a lot of Americans go over and they're excited to be there. And we're just allowed people in general. (laughs) And so we're obnoxious. And so a lot of times when we'd see other Americans, we would just like pretend we were French. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Because we were like, we don't want to be associated with that. And then, so what we just found is if we didn't know where we were going or needed help, like if we tried 
our pitiful French first, then the French were like so willing to help and, and they would instantly change to English. We'd be like, and then they would instantly jump into like, oh, you need directions. Like, let me help you, you know, and they'd point you in the right direction and so kind. So I don't know. I think it's really, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what city you live in, in the United States, like if you approach people with respect and kindness and love and like with the assumption that you're going to get those things in return. I just think that that like it changes your whole world approach and what you get from the world. What a beautiful outlook. I never realized how judgmental I was before all of my greatest trials. The harder things are, the less and less judgmental I get. I try to lead with the belief that everyone is doing the best that they can. I think through Emily's travels and seeing these third world countries, as well as her hardships we'll get into soon, have created this beautiful, loving person who leads with respect and kindness. When you lead with empathy rather than judgment, it changes your whole perspective. But I also don't think you should judge yourself for not having those experiences beforehand because when we're young, we just don't. We just haven't had our life experiences yet. And you'll have them. Everybody has them. Yeah. But, <laughs> and then I think at that point that, that that really determines our character. Once we have those experiences and then we can say, okay, am I still going to lead with judgment or am I going to lead with compassion? So I think sometimes youth gets a bad rap because they're like, oh, they're just so young. They don't know what they're doing. And I'm like, stay young as long as you can. I don't want you to have the heartbreak that we have had to have to get. Yes, you know what I, I agree. mean? So, uh, no judgment for youth, no judgment for people who are bitter and old and have been through a lot of hard things. Emily told me how she recently went to a dinner with the woman organization from her church. The subject at dinner was trials, and women were able to share many different difficult experiences. At the end, the woman who put the event together, she stood up and she said, you know, ladies, I would like you to stand up when you hear something that you have been through. And, and you don't have to say anything, you just stand up. And let me qualify this by saying there were young ladies in the audience. So there were girls who were 11 years old up to 18, as well as women oh, wow. you know, from adulthood all the way to 90, you know? <laughs> so a wide variety of women, there were probably like 50 or so in the room. And so as she started saying, you know, if you have experienced loss in any form, please stand. And, you know, half the room stands. And if you have experienced, like if you are single and it wasn't of your own decision, like either through death or divorce or whatever it may be, please stand. And, and so as the room keeps standing, what was so sweet is there was a young lady on my table who was 11 and you could just see she was embarrassed because she kept thinking like, oh, maybe I should stand. Oh no, no, I haven't done that. Oh, maybe, maybe this one. Oh no. And she was like wanting to stand up and I started crying and I was like, you just stay seated for as many years as possible. And don't be ashamed of that, that your life hasn't been hard. Like what a blessing that it hasn't been hard. And it just like really touched my heart. I'm going to cry. I feel like I was that person for so long where like my parents loved each other and I just had this beautiful life and still, I still am too hard on myself and feel like I haven't gone through anything. And so I feel like, why am I allowed to be telling all these other people's stories? Seriously, gathering these stories has humbled me so much. People struggle with some major things. While I need to practice self-compassion and give myself a little bit of credit for the hard things I have been through, I also appreciate the blessing that because my life has been so blessed, I am able to have the mental capacity to hear and share all of these stories. Although, since my show is very transparent, I won't lie to you, it has triggered some mental health issues inside of myself. But those feelings needed to be brought out and dealt with anyway. So... Are you wondering yet, what is this trial Emily had to face? Let's get into it. We talked about her life before marriage, her husband, and now I asked about her kids. How many kids do you have? So that is always a hard, painful question, right? For some people who've had losses, and I'm, I'm fine with it, but initially it was really hard for me because we have four living children and one who's passed on. So five total. So we have Daphne, who's 11, well, almost 11. Darcy, who's seven, Alan and Aiden are our twins. So our surviving twin, Alan, is going to be six at the end of the summer. And our little baby, Phoebe's two. Oh my gosh, you had another one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, our little rainbow baby. And oh man, she if she was first, we would have only had one. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm so glad she's here. She's wonderful, but she is a challenge. (laughs) Each pregnancy was challenging for Emily. She's a small person measuring at 4'11". She gets really big, really fast, so her body just can't really handle it. Her first daughter was an emergency C-section. They had a little miracle with their second. Almost four years later, after struggling with infertility for a while, their second daughter was born in the traditional way. Since it took so long to get pregnant between their two oldest, they started trying right away for their next baby. Of course, this time they were pregnant right away. So we have this weird gap between our oldest and our second, and then this really small space between our uh, second daughter and our twins. So when we found out we were pregnant with the twins, it was kind of shocking. I was like, oh my heck, we are going to have four kids, five and under, and that is going to be so hard. So at first I was really nervous. And then also because of my previous C-section and and twin pregnancies are high risk anyway, Mm -hmm. they immediately, they had a lot of concerns for us right away. So it was hard. It was like physically really awful. But from the onset, I just had this intuition that something was wrong with the babies. And that was confirmed when we, at your 20 week, they'd send you to a, um, what they call a periontologist to do a more in-depth ultrasound. And at that point we found out that there was a huge growth discrepancy between our twin A and twin B. And they thought it was from a condition called TTTS, which is twin twin transfusion syndrome, where essentially when you have identical twins and they share a placenta, um, upon conception, uh, some of those blood veins from the babies can connect in the placenta and it acts almost like you're hooked up with an IV to somebody next to you. So it's Mm. like this sharing of blood and nutrients back and forth between the babies. And one baby can end up hoarding and the other can end up being drained. But it's actually dangerous for both babies because the one who's hoarding, their heart is being overworked and their heart can stop from not being able to pump that much blood. And the other baby can lose so much nutrients that they stop growing and and end up passing away. But the really hard thing about that situation is that if one baby passes, they're still connected. And so they'll continue to flood the dead fetus without it reciprocating. So a lot of times it leads to the death of both babies. So we were really closely monitored for months after that. And well, it was about five more weeks of close monitoring. And they have this revolutionary surgery they can do now. There's five doctors in the United States who do it. And The closest one to us was in LA, but they have a very limited window of development where they can go in, in utero and take a laser and basically blast or burn those connected blood veins. And then the babies can be separate in their growth, but it's super dangerous. It can send you into labor prematurely. And so that's why they have like this window of, you can usually do it between like 25 weeks and 20 seven weeks. It's just like this brief, brief time when they can do it. And I could be wrong on those. So don't quote me. (laughs) I could be wrong on those dates, but I want to say that that was the timeframe. Anyway, so we were 25 weeks and they were like, okay, you go now or you don't go at all. So they sent us to LA. And when we met with the surgeon and they did a, a big examination, he came in and he said, well, have some unfortunate news. Like, yes, your babies have TTS, but also your baby A is poorly attached to the placenta. So it's basically like our son, Alan was just, his umbilical cord was tapped right into the center of the placenta and he was getting lots of prime nutrients. And our baby Aiden was, umbilical cord was kind of almost like dangling off of the bottom of the placenta. So not only did they have the TTTS, but he also had what's called SUGR, selective uterine growth restriction. So even if they did the surgery, that wouldn't necessarily mean that it would save both of their lives. But what it would mean is that their fates would be separate. So they had a few options. One, they could take the babies out right then and put them in the NICU. However, this comes with all the complications of having premature babies and the problems it can cause in the future. Second, they could do the surgery, but the risk with that is Emily could go into labor or it could have been too much for the babies and killed both of them. Third, they could just abort the pregnancy altogether. Lastly, they could choose to tie up the umbilical cord of the struggling baby and try to save the other one. 
I almost hate it more when there's so many options. As a parent who has had to make decisions for my medically fragile child, this is no easy feat. All the fear of worrying and wondering what is the right choice instantly ensues. So every option was horrible and terrible. So in a matter of like minutes, we had to decide and they were really um, generous and gave us time to go into a conference room and we we prayed together and, and we felt like the best choice for our babies was to go through with the surgery. So we ended up doing the laser ablation. So where they went in and they severed the connections between the babies. So the surgery ended up being a success. So going backwards a little bit. So I had those feelings of intuition really early on. And I thought maybe I was just being anxious because we had previous struggles in our um, pregnancies. So we had been up visiting my parents for Easter that year. And I asked my husband and my dad to give me a what's called a priesthood blessing. So people who follow our faith tradition, which is I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints. And in our faith, when you are given a priesthood blessing that the men who are worthy to hold the priesthood, they place their hands on your head and they speak what they feel inspired to speak, which is essentially what God would want you to hear. So my husband was the voice for that blessing and he and my father placed their hands on my head and I was expecting them to be like, everything's going to be fine. <laughs> You're just overreacting like this. Just have peace and it's going to be fine. But instead, what he felt inspired to say was that um, this pregnancy was going to be a long and bumpy road and that there was going to be lots of difficult decisions to be made and lots of heartache. And he said that in the end, the babies will arrive full and healthy. So I honestly don't remember anything else from the rest of the blessing because I just clung to that phrase. And it became a mantra for me throughout all of the many, many appointments with the, the perientologist. And through the surgery, I just kept thinking like whole and healthy, whole and healthy. These babies are going to come whole and healthy. And so when we we're trying to make the decision uh, whether or not to go through with the laser ablation surgery. I just felt like, well, we have to do our part in order to get the babies here whole and healthy. So this surgery is going to go well. We're just going to like astound our doctors and they're going to see the power of God manifested in the safe arrival of these babies. And so it was like very hard and very emotional, but I also had that underlying current of strength and like just assurance, like everything's going to work out just fine. In the meantime, unforeseen circumstances had been taking place, and this little family had moved three times in a six-week span that summer. When they found out that they were pregnant with twins, they were in a small starter home, and Emily just didn't think that was going to be enough space for their growing family. So they put their home up for sale, and they were going to build. But their home sold in four days. So they had to find a place to stay. Her brother was actually serving as a diplomat in Turkey at that time, and there was some political unrest, so he had bought in a home near Emily's for a backup plan. They had moved in there. However, the day after returning home from L.A., her brother called, and there had been an emergency, and he needed his family to go home. Crazy how life doesn't just stop when you're in the middle of your trial. Things just kind of pile on. So then... The day we got home from LA from the surgery, there was a military coup in Turkey. And he called me and he's like, I'm so sorry, but I've got to send my family. And like, you're totally welcome to live there still. But I just was thinking, oh my heck, I'm going to end up having these NICU babies plus my two young daughters plus four little boys. Like that is not going to be a peaceful environment for anyone. Yeah. It was very, a lot to carry. Around that same time, a friend from church had just gotten a, his dream job and they were moving. So he randomly was moving and he's like, why don't you guys move into my house and while it's on the market? And I just said, look, <laughs> like, that's really generous of you. But if I have to move again, I am going to have a mental breakdown. <laughs> And so they were really generous and they said, move into our house. We're going to take it off the market. You get your babies here safely 
and everything's going to be fine. Like we'll, uh-huh. we'll just hold, which was so generous of them. After these three moves in six weeks, they were finally settled just in time for all the abundant doctor's appointments that come with a high-risk pregnancy. In the next month, um, we were still having multiple doctor's appointments to monitor baby's hearts to see how they were responding after the surgery. Every single time we'd go to our doctor, I mean, he was not very tactful. At one point he said, man, after our last appointment, I was just expecting him to roll over and die. I mean, I'm just amazed he's still here. And it's like, um, (laughs) you could have worded that so different. So better. (laughs) These appointments were just so draining because we would go down. It would be like a five to six hour process mm-hmm. from like the time we left to get there, to do the appointment, come back. And we were doing them every other day. And then in between, I was going to my regular doctor nearer me and having stress test, NST test on the hearts to make sure their hearts were still beating. And so a lot of times at these NST tests, they wouldn't be able to find Aiden's heartbeat because it was so faint. Because even though... Alan was still growing. I mean, basically he was an innocent bystander. He was just growing normally and healthy and Aiden was really struggling. And so we got to the point where it was just normal for them to not find the heartbeat at first. And it would take them a while. Sometimes we'd have to go in and get an ultrasound and then they'd be like, oh, there he is. And they'd find him and be like, okay. And then they'd monitor his heart. So I wasn't so super concerned when they couldn't find his heartbeat anymore. Cause still I was like, This is so stressful, but I know it's going to all work out. The goal after that surgery in L.A. was to get the pregnancy to go 32 weeks. After that, the chances for spinal bifida, blindness, and all those other issues go way down. It was like this terrible guessing game of like, is he going to die next week? Should we take him now and save him, but then maybe bring problems upon Alan that he wouldn't have otherwise? So it was like a day-by-day is now the time, is now the time. But we really were shooting for that 32-week mark. So at our 31-week appointment, they were like, we can't believe it. You've made it so far. Let's schedule your C-section. And we had to go to St. George for that because we didn't have at our hospital a NICU set up to take babies that small. So we we were delighted. We At that point, we finally named them. We hadn't named them up until that point. And the night before our surgery... We just were like, we're meeting our sons in the morning. And we told our girls, like, you'll get to come to the NICU and see your brothers. And the next morning we went in and they started searching for their heartbeats as they were prepping me for the C-section and they couldn't find Aiden's heartbeat. And I was like, it's fine. He does this, you know, <laughs> like, that's totally fine. But then they kept searching and kept searching. And then they finally brought in one of those portable ultrasound machines into the room and we were actually with a doctor that we didn't know Mm. um since we were in St. George but just from his body posture like as soon as he came in you could just tell that this was not the routine and search that we'd become accustomed to let's take a break want more of beyond the picket fence well join us in our free facebook community This community is our secret little place to escape all of the perfection we see here on social media and connect with women just like you who are ready to be done comparing and start being compassionate to themselves and others. Find it at facebook.com slash groups slash beyond the picket fence. Link also in the show notes. Can't wait to see you in there. And we're back with Emily, whose doctors are still searching for the second baby's heartbeat. As soon as he came in, you could just tell that this was not the routine and search that we'd become accustomed to. And as he was searching, he finally just said, I'm so sorry, but your baby doesn't have a heartbeat. And it was like, um, I don't know. It was just like an entire, your whole world had just been ripped out from underneath you. And I felt just pain that I had never felt in my life before. Um, And it was so raw and um, private, but I had this room full of professionals. And so it was, it was a really strange moment, like trying to somehow contain this uncontainable force. So it was really 
devastating. And because Aiden and Alan had done the surgery, Alan was still fine. And so they ended up canceling our C-section and just sending us home. I feel like that was such a defining moment in the hospital when we were finally left alone, just to realize like, okay, what about that blessing? (laughs) Remember that blessing she had earlier on? She was told her babies would be whole and healthy, right? What part of this makes sense? Because we were promised two whole and healthy babies. So I had this distinct moment where I felt like I could turn away from everything I had ever believed, or I could like lean into it and choose to continue to believe despite what looked like evidence of the untruthfulness of God's blessings or our faith tradition. I had this moment where I almost felt like I was in my brain making that decision. It was like walking on this path and I had to get off one side or the other. Like I couldn't, the the path forked basically and I could go one direction or the other. And I chose to cling to God in that moment instead of turning from him. And that has made all the difference in my life. And it was like, once I made that mental choice in my brain that I would turn to him, even though I was still devastated, I was just totally flooded with peace And this understanding that we are very limited in our view of eternity and of life and what I viewed as a blessing of like mortality, if that makes sense, was actually an eternal blessing. And I just got the very direct impression that my baby was whole and healthy. Just because he wasn't with me didn't mean that he wasn't whole and that Alan because his brother had held on for as long as he'd had, would be whole and healthy. And it was all I needed. Not to say that there hasn't been lots and lots of emotions. My mom once told me that angels attend to those that need them in these types of situations. A close family friend lost a young child recently, and I just cried for days and I couldn't understand God's plan for that family. I couldn't get over it and my heart ached for my friend. I had to realize the angels would help where they were needed. I couldn't fathom how they'd get through it, but it wasn't my place to bear this burden for them. The angels were there where they needed to be, just like here in Emily's story. So I actually asked my husband for another blessing and he was able to find a person on the hospital staff who was a member of our faith and came in, a total stranger to us, but he came in and helped give another blessing to me. And I was kind of holding out hope until that point, then maybe the doctors haven't heard right. We talk about the grief cycle, right? And the different emotions. So this probably was my moment of denial (laughs) where I was like, you know, let's check that again. Or I almost thought, okay, if I have enough faith in this moment, I mean, Jesus brought people back from the dead. Miracles happen. If I can show enough faith in this moment, his heart's going to start beating again, or they're going to be like, oh, we made a mistake and actually he's fine. And so I asked my husband to give me a blessing. And I said, is it possible for you to use the priesthood and bring Nathan back? Like, is that possible? And he, bless him. (laughs) He wasn't like, you're crazy. (laughs) He was just like, I can try. I mean, miracles happen, right? So he placed his hands on my head and very tenderly just said, The very first things he said is, Emily, your heavenly father wants you to know your son is well. And and I knew at that point, like, okay, he's not with me, but that doesn't mean that he's not where he's supposed to be. And, And then the next thing he said is, heavenly father wants you to know there is mercy in this. And I thought to myself, you know, for this little baby to have had restricted growth his whole pregnancy and they couldn't tell exactly what kind of problems he would have but it was evident that there would be you know probably mental physical challenges for him because of his restriction and at that point I realized if he had come the blessing wouldn't have been fulfilled because he would not have been whole and healthy and who knows how challenging and painful that could have been for him. I'm really in a, in a strange way, like very grateful that 
he didn't have to come and be confined to a body that couldn't function properly for him. Um, and I am so grateful for the mothers out there who are strong enough to parent a special needs child and that is their mission and they handle it so well. I, I don't know. I think when he said there is mercy in this, not only was it merciful to Aiden, but I also think it was merciful to our family. That might sound super selfish, but I think that Heavenly Father knew that maybe we couldn't give him what he needed. I I still think that if he had come, we would have figured it out, right? Like we would have taken the challenges given to us and to him, and we would have been so grateful to have him. And I never, ever would have asked for him to be taken from us. But because it happened, I choose to find like the things to be grateful for. And I'm really grateful that he didn't have to have those challenges. I marveled at Emily's courage to even admit these things out loud. Parenting special needs children can be a heavy load to carry as well. Neither of these things is easy. With all the grief that she carries missing her baby, I think it's totally okay for her to see a small blessing in the trial she didn't have to take on. It's okay for you to be happy that you didn't have to be a caretaker and it's beautiful that people can do that and do do right. That. And you would have done that if you had to. Yes, absolutely. I mean. So I absolutely. think that right there is like really beyond the picket fence. Like things people are thinking but don't say. And I mm-hmm. love that you just said it because it's nothing bad about you or bad about anyone else. It's just a like being a caregiver is really, 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 really difficult. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. It was beautiful. That's kind of you. I know that it's it's something I struggled with because I felt like if I had a different personality, if I was more faithful, like these are the kind of things that come after, right? Even though you have the feelings of peace and reassurance that this is according to God's plan and this is what was intended for our family, there are still moments of darkness where you feel like, or at least I did. In my situation, I felt like if I had been more faithful, then maybe the outcome would have been different. I had to learn that, you know, that's bogus. (laughs) But it's hard to tell your brain that when you're grieving. We can have faith and know of God's will, but are still humans. Crying or being angry or whatever emotions you have to navigate after loss doesn't mean you're less faithful. It all can exist together. That's probably why there's so much pain in growth. I think what was a really revelatory experience for me later, months later, was I was reading from the scriptures. And by the way, for those listeners who are not religious, I was thinking about this morning before we started visiting is there is no way for me to cut out the faith aspect of our story. It's just so integral to who we are and our journey and our experience. So if you are not a religious listener, please know that like, I think that you can still find application to your own problems and your own trials, but this is just the reality of what we experienced. A little backstory here. They had made arrangements to stay in Emily's sister's basement while they thought they were going to be going back and forth from the NICU. Emily's five-year-old daughter was supposed to be starting kindergarten. And again, since they thought they were having babies, Emily's sister was going to help with their other daughter for a while. So we came back to her house and had to tell our daughters, like, you're actually not meeting your brothers and Aiden has passed. And that was a really big challenge to help these little ones understand what had happened. They say that most children don't understand the finality of death until about age five. And our daughter was five. So I remember when we sat down to tell her, when we got back to the house, she was almost like, Like you could see the little wheels turning in her head and she couldn't quite grasp what we were saying. And then her little cousin came around the corner and she turned to her and she's all, my brother's dead. (laughs) Like totally insensitive. But then it was like once it came out of her mouth, then it became real. And she just started sobbing. and, And but our little one, Darcy had no concept of what was going on. She was only, she wasn't even quite two. So for them to suddenly have like this mom who's bawling all the time, (laughs) like what is happening and really challenging for them to understand and for us to all work through. So we were there in St. George still, and we took them down to one of our 
temples for our church. And we were on the the grounds of the temple and we talked to them about our belief in eternal families. And again, that spirit of peace just enveloped us and, and helped us to feel like this is this is true. What we're teaching them is true, that we really will be reunited with our brother and he's still part of our life, even if we can't see him. The next day, Emily and her husband found themselves alone in the house. We started just picking up reading the scriptures from where we had left off in our couple study. And I want to read this to you because it was so profound and helpful to us in that moment. So this is a scripture found in the New Testament in the book of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. So now the night before we had gone to our C-section, we had decided to name our boys Alan and Aiden. Alan's a family name, and my husband's actually Alan Burke, and his dad is Alan, so he's going to be little Alan the third. And Alan means the rock. And so then we decided um, to do Aiden because it means little fire. And we liked that Alan had just been this steady rock the whole pregnancy. He'd just been doing his thing, growing normal and fine. And Aiden had been like this little fighter, this fire. So this is just within like a day and a half, then we come across this scripture and it says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And then I know this verse is talking about Jesus Christ, but it felt like it was talking about Aiden to us. It said, whom having not seen... Ye love, and in whom, though ye, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. And I just felt so seen by God when we read that. It was like, what are the odds that we would read this verse at this moment on this day? And we weren't, it wasn't even like a New Testament year. We were just like reading the New Testament on our own. And it was such an answer to our prayers that we would see him again. And from that moment, I just felt like the the way my husband worded it, he's all, this is where the rubber hits the road. This is where like life is kicking us <laughs> hard <laughs> and we decide what course we're going to take from here on. Because up until that point in our life, you know, not that we hadn't had challenges, but nothing like this and nothing to rock us to our foundation and to our core. And so from that point forward, I felt like for me, it was all about staying the course and using this experience to bring us closer to God. In Emily's book, There Is No Other Way, she talks about the grief cycle and how there's a time of being in the victim stage. I asked what that looked like for her. I, I don't think we were in a victim space of like, how could this happen for very long? I mean, it was definitely there initially. It was like, wait a second, <laughs> we thought this was going to look different. Um, I think partially because we had the circumstances that we did where um, we had another baby to worry about. And so within two weeks, Alan was born. And so it was really strange because we're in the hospital, like holding our stillborn son in one arm and holding our living Nikki baby in the other arm. And he was just this teeny tiny little skinny thing, but he was healthy. Even though he was so little, he was totally perfect in all other areas. So it was this very strange seesaw of like joy and grief existing in the same space and, you know, planning a funeral while like doing all these things to try and fatten up our little skeleton baby. Not only that, but their two other kids were still very much dependent on mom. They were five and two. They still needed bathing, being fed, potty training. Sheesh, how overwhelming. I think in some ways that was so exhausting, but in other ways that really helped us keep going. I did not have the luxury of just laying in bed and mourning, which I desperately wanted. And in some ways I felt very resentful about. I was like... <laughs> I just need a good month to just 
cry in bed and and I, I didn't have that. And so I think in some ways that that in hindsight was a huge blessing because it, you just have to keep going and there wasn't time to be in that victim mindset. How do you navigate providing yourself space to grieve and mm. keep going? That's a great question. For me, I just found uh, ways. So for example, I write and at the time I had a blog and so I would just write my feelings out when the little ones were in bed. And that was like my special space to fill what I needed to fill, to put on the paper, all that I was processing with. I don't think I did it right. <laughs> I don't know that there is a right way. So in fact, I, because I'm a reader and a writer, I went to bookstores after that looking specifically for religious perspectives on how to get through moments like this. And I couldn't find what I needed. And then it took me about a year later, I was like, well, maybe then I create the thing that would have been helpful to me. And I know that my book is not going to be the fix for everyone. I mean, it's, it's definitely such an individual journey for all people, Mm -hmm. but I just felt like the more content I can put out that would have been helpful to me, hopefully it'll reach the people it needs to reach and be a bomb to them when they're going through what they're going through. But as far as like holding space for yourself, I think one of the most helpful concepts that I was taught later um, was this whole concept of clean pain and dirty pain. Oh my goodness. My eyes almost popped out of my head when she said this. This is exactly what helped me in my trauma. She also heard this idea initially from Jody Moore. She teaches about how we all go through unexpected trials and pains through our life and that there is no shame in feeling the shock, the heartbreak, the clean pain that comes along with disappointments and struggles in our life. However, there is a layer we can put on ourselves and a weight, if you will, of, of dirty pain. And that is when we start to think thoughts and like, this shouldn't have happened to me. Well, the reality is it, it happened. <laughs> like you're living it and you can resist it all you want and say, this shouldn't have happened or he shouldn't treat me like that. Or this person in my neighborhood is awful. We can, we can resist all we want, or we can even start to beat ourselves up and using it against yourself. And that's the dirty pain. And, and often that is way heavier than the actual pain of the event. So if you're in the middle of a struggle, I encourage you to do a quick check. Are you shooting all over yourself or others? That could be one way to lessen your pain because telling yourself you should be doing a certain way that's not the way you're doing it causes extra unnecessary pain. I do know it's a lot easier said than done though. I've had to do a lot of work on this myself. It's totally okay to say this is hard. This is hard. And I think that the way we frame it in our mind makes all the difference and helps us move from those victim spaces into a survivor space when you can start to say, this is hard and I can handle it. Or this is hard and I'm going to take some time to be sad about it but then I'm going to get up and get showered. (laughs) While writing her blog, Emily one day felt inspired to post one of her articles in a Facebook group called Moms of Multiples. The response she got was incredible, and it gave her the confidence she needed to start writing her book. I started to think about how pain is often so universal. Like we talk about universal suffering, but unless if we zoom in and get like the micro version to a macro picture, like it's really hard to conceptualize that. So I decided that I wanted to interview 50 women in a five mile radius about the hard things that they'd been going through in their life. And it was super presumptuous. Like the way I reached out to these women and you're probably experiencing the same thing is, you know, reaching out to women and saying, Hey, do you want to talk to me about like the hardest things you've ever gone through? And so I was really surprised by how enthusiastic they were about it and more than willing. I only had two women in the whole project, which took three years. I only had two women turn me down. And it was just because they were still so tender about their loss that they weren't ready to talk about it. And not just loss, like sorrow of all kinds. And And then that just began this beautiful journey of 
coming to see these women in particular and people in general in in a much more empathetic light and realizing that everyone has their story. And I've always loved that quote and be kind because everyone is fighting their own battle. And that just became very real to me through this process. Because she has littles, this process was long. Women would come over and these conversations would last three to five hours. In the end, she has this book that in such a beautiful way tells her story and the stories of these other 50 women. It just really taught me that you think you know people. And so I would go into them thinking, okay, she's going to talk to me about her cancer journey. And then we would spend hours talking about the abuse from her childhood or the husband's pornography addiction or like her eating disorder, like all of these challenges that I would have never guessed they had carried or were currently carrying. And a lot of times the more visible challenges are not the the big heartbreaks in people's lives. So it was super refining and wonderful. And my husband was just like my biggest cheerleader. And I think that the process of writing the book was really one of the most healing elements of, of my grief journey. And it was almost like it was a way to channel all of that love that I had for Aiden into a productive energy. What was really interesting is when I finally actually got signed and got published with a publishing house. And that was super exciting. But the day, the actual day of the book release, I was a wreck, <laughs> like reliving all the grief because it just felt like, now what? Like, what do I do with all of this love and all this heartbreak if this project is over now? And I will say that grief just, manifest in the most unexpected ways. Like I would have thought I would have been celebrating that day and like, look what I did, look what I accomplished. And it was one of the hardest days for me in my grief. And so you never know when it's going to sneak up on you and you never know what's going to trigger. But I think that there really is truth in the time being your greatest healer that the shock does wear off, the reality sets in, and you can learn. I have many friends in the midst of grief who live with it. So I asked, what was her advice for those in the middle of it? I would say to anyone who is currently like heavy in their grief, be kind to yourself and realize that this chapter is not going to last forever. And there are things you can do to, to help propel, to make that process go by faster but also like zero expectations for yourself to, to be like, in a month, I want to be past this. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't work that way. And um, oh, we just have to give ourselves grace and kindness and space to, to travel through it at whatever speed we think is necessary. As I've learned more about grief, I've realized it's not really something you just grow and get past. You just more learn to exist with it. I've seen it, visual representations of like the hole, right? That's just in your chest. Like, I don't feel like that hole ever gets smaller. For me, it hasn't. I think I've just learned to navigate around it. When it very first hit, it was like, I couldn't breathe around that hole there. Like it was that, I mean, there's a reason they talk about like, my heart is breaking. I can't breathe. I like, it honestly feels like a physical presence there. And so at first it's just shocking that you're now navigating life with this wound and, and you don't really know how to do that. And so over time you just learn like, oh, this is just part of me now. It's there and it's never going away, but it's just part of me. And I think that the more I communicated with other people, the more comfortable I got with that hole. When I went through a stage of trying to act stronger than I was, that is when the pain was the worst, is when I was in denial to myself or repressing the emotions. So for me, I kind of, in my head, I think of it as the three C's. Like the more I communicate and the more I connect and the more I contribute, the less painful that hole is. Through her experience and the experience of hearing all these women's journeys, she was blessed with a gift. It's the greatest gift for me 
is the result of greater empathy for other people and just being more aware of the suffering that other people are going through. Mm -hmm. So about six months after our loss, we had another family in our neighborhood who had a stillborn. Actually, that's not true. Sorry, he wasn't stillborn. He was born prematurely and then passed. And if I had heard that before, I would have said, oh, that's so sad. How awful for their family. But when I heard it, with our own loss so fresh that my response was, this is devastating. What can we do for this family? I found that I was way more proactive in just being aware of them and reaching out in a way that would be helpful to them. So for some people, that's hugging, that's talking, that's crying with them. For other people, it's just saying, I'm here. And if you need me, I'm here. For others, it's taking their kids so they can have the morning in the bed where they can just lay in bed and cry because you don't feel like you can do that when you have other children. Because first of all, like for me, I was all, what are they going to remember? How traumatic will this be for them if mom can't get out of bed every day? And I still have to feed them breakfast. I still have to change diapers. I still like, I can't keep going. And so If you can be that for another mother, whether it be in her loss or in her depressive episodes or in her husband losing her job, like, and you can go and say, I know how much it would have meant to me for somebody to take my kids to the park because I just wanted to stay home and cry for that hour and not have them see it and get that all out. And then they come home and be like, hi, let's do a puzzle, you know, but it made me want to do more of that for others. Mm -hmm. When my son Jackson was withdrawing from drugs at home after his three months in the hospital and had two open heart surgeries, so many people helped with our other daughter. And I will always remember the friends who came and helped me put feeding tubes in. One friend even came over and just sat with me. I was in my underwear, just a mess with this crying baby who was in so much pain with every inch that I moved. I was surrounded by laundry, dishes, medical supplies, And it was the lowest of lows for me. At that point, I learned how to truly serve another. This was it. Sometimes we don't need someone to fix everything. Sometimes we just need someone to sit in it with us. For me, the real healing came when I started trying to contribute to other people. But like some people get to that way faster than others. And if you are one of those people who can get to it right away, like wonderful, how fantastic for you and your healing and for the people around you. But if you're one of those where it takes years, literally years, like no guilt, no shame, it's a process. And there's also ways that if you don't like the way you're feeling and you want to move through it, there is no shame in therapy. There is no shame in reaching out to your friend and being like, is there any way we can set up a play date exchange once a week so I can have some time without my kids? Is there exercise groups that you can get a part of that will help you take care of your body so that your mind can be and your emotions can be elevated? You know, that's another thing that Jody teaches that I really appreciate is she said that, that it's actual like grief work. There's a reason why they call it work is because it's exhausting to grieve all the time. And so to give yourself permission to take a break from the grieving, to be like, okay, I'm going to let myself feel sad and really feel it and lean into it for an hour. And then I'm going to let myself put that aside. And not that I forget about my grief and not that it's not a part of me, but I'm going to put it aside. And I don't think it's like repression. It's just like, it's so exhausting that you can't, you can't carry that all the time. So you're going to be like, okay, I'll come back to you grief tomorrow for an hour. But right now my kids need me. Or right now I need me or right now my job needs me or whatever, like whatever your responsibilities may be that, that it's okay to take a step away from it for a time too. Is it hard to allow yourself to have fun or to laugh in the depth of it? I think that I had a sense very early on that I just didn't know its purpose it would serve. I felt like if Aiden came and his mission was to come and teach us all these things, then how does it serve him if I'm nothing but sad all the time? Do you know what I mean? In what way does that pay tribute to his life if he leaves nothing but a like trail of heartbreak? (laughs) So for me, I have been like laughing and being happy and being a good mom and 
writing the book or whatever, all these things pay tribute to him. So whether you're like a survivor of sexual abuse, like I think you could reframe that in such a way that you could be like, okay, so I suffered this sexual abuse as a child and I can leave this trail of destruction behind me because of it. Um, and this, this person who did this to me, that's what, like they like can they be, win almost. Yeah, they win. Exactly. They win. If you let your life be nothing but heartbreak and your relationships be a mess. Um, but if you use every triumph as a way to overcome that and say like, you did not put me down. You did not destroy my life. And that's kind of how I feel about Aiden's passing is like, I can either choose to let it be a destructive force in my life, or I can choose to elevate myself and others because of it. And, and I feel like when I see him again, I want him to be like, mom, look what you did, you know, and you must have loved me so much to do all of this. And so that's what motivates me. Not that I think he's up there judging me anytime I cry. Like, of course he knows that I love him, but I feel like my love is better served in building rather than in mourning. Speaking of building, Emily is working on another project and it just launched her second book. It's called Lost for Littles, a guide for families dealing with death. My oldest daughter, Daphne, when we were going through our loss of Aiden, that we had a couple of experiences that were potentially traumatic for her. And at the time, I didn't have any resources to guide me through it. For example, people kept saying to her, we're so sorry, your family lost the baby. And she was young enough that she took that literally. And she was really upset that we weren't like looking for this baby. And so she started to have nightmares that she was lost and no one was coming to look for her. And we didn't know. She would wake up crying. It took a long time to figure out what was going on. So it's from Daphne's point of view so that another child would feel like they're having a conversation with this child. And I feel like a lot of the books that exist out there are like an adult talking to a child. It doesn't feel very approachable. And a lot of times I feel like the books come after the fact that they've had a burial and they've had a graveside and a viewing and a funeral and all those things. And that's when a lot of the trauma happens for some kids, because often when you've had a loss, the parents aren't in a mindset to be like, oh, I should prepare my child for these unfamiliar ceremonies that are about to happen. Mm -hmm. And they're just surviving and getting the funeral prepared and often are in an emotional state to be able to think through what they need to prepare their child on. So my hope is that if you know someone who's at a loss and you can gift them this book, then it will provide the parent and the child an opportunity to sit down and read through and prepare them for these things. My greatest hope is that it will open up conversations so that they can assess what the child is and is not understanding. So one of the families who reviewed the manuscript, they had just lost their dad in a tragic motorcycle accident and the children as she talked with them about it and they were reading the book, one of them said, like, I, I thought it was my fault that dad died, you know? And she didn't realize that this child had been carrying this until they sat down and read the book together. And so then of course they were able to talk about that and resolve it. And I think there's a lot of kids out there who don't know how to express these big feelings they're having. And so a lot of times it comes out as like, temper tantrums or for teenagers, you know, just like being angry or or secluding themselves. So the more we can facilitate conversations about these hard topics in that, in a really, what I hope is a very soft approach. That's why we've really focused on illustrations that are like warm and inviting and light colors so that it takes what's potentially a really heavy topic and allows them to approach it. Uh, in a more friendly manner. This resource is so incredible. The first book coming out is for Christian audience, but Emily asked me to invite you guys, my listeners, if you know anyone who has suffered loss with different backgrounds, they are looking for families of Chinese traditionalists, Islamic, Buddhist, Hindu, and Jewish to complete this five book series. Her hopes is to have a resource for any family with any background who experiences loss if you are or know someone, please reach out to Emily. Her links will be in the show notes. 
I'm so grateful that my friend sent me her cousin's book. I really feel like I've been enlisted in this army of people spreading compassion. Wherever you're at in your trial or grief, I want you to know that you have a place here. Let's be kind to ourselves and reach out to others for help or to help them, whichever your circumstance allows right now. Either way, we need each other. And with that, I asked, and I'll always ask, what do you wish people saw beyond your white picket fence? And she started with a story of someone close to her asking a very pointed question. And one of the things that was asked was, do you always want to be known as the mom who lost a baby? And that was really painful because I feel like the reason I have chosen to share is because I know what it's like to feel alone in your grief. And so I've hoped that by communicating and being vulnerable that others who are hurting can find permission to share their own story and and a safe place if they choose to share their thoughts with me. So then it sent me into this space where I was like, well, if this person is thinking this about me, how many other people are out there judging me and wanting me to be quiet about our loss. And, and I will say that I did not feel like I was an oversharer. I honestly was thinking I only post about this, like maybe once every six months, if that, then I started being like, I can't ever post about this. I can't ever. And, but then I just had to have this moment of embracing, like, this is who I am. And this is part of our journey. And If that's not a message that he needs to hear, he's not my audience. You know what I mean? My words are not meant for him. And that's not like, it's okay that he doesn't need to read or hear what I have to say, but someone else does. And so I guess what I wish people would see behind the picket fence is like, for me and for anyone else who is choosing to be vulnerable, especially in an online space, that if it doesn't resonate with you, it's okay. You're not their audience. I think sometimes people are labeled as attention seekers when they choose to share, whether it be, you know, the mom who's sharing about her depression or her child with autism or the man who shares about his pornography addiction, whatever. Like, I think sometimes there's this weird negativity that's like, Ooh, why are they sharing that? (laughs) Like, are they trying to get attention? Are they don't they know how uncomfortable this is? And I think that that's the whole concept of getting into the arena. Like uh, you can sit behind your computer and judge people all you want, but until you get in the arena and you're willing to talk about hard things, then like, I don't think that your judgments should matter. And just that we're all doing the best that we can, right? And I would just say not only my white picket fence, but people in general and that... We're all going through our own hard chapters at different moments. If we can lead with kindness, then it benefits everyone. This has been another episode of Beyond the Picket Fence. If you have a story to share or you know someone that does, please reach out to me on my website, Facebook, or Instagram. The link for all these things should be in the show notes. Will. They will be in the show notes. I'm going to put them there for you. And as always, be kind because you never know what's going on beyond the picket fence.